Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Who are those guys? I'm Galen. And I'm Doug. And we're those movie guys. Bringing movie reviews and previews to the masses since 2007. Today is Monday, October 29th, 2007. Today on the show we have reviews of Ben Affleck's directorial debut, Gone Baby Gone, in theaters this weekend, and the new DVD release of Mr. Brooks, starring Kevin Costner. Then, in honor of Ben Affleck's directorial debut, we count down our top five favorite directorial debut films. Ben Affleck has taken a lot of crap as an actor, some of it deserved. Critics have accused him of being dull, lazy, and uninteresting. So when it was announced that he would be making his directorial debut, many of us were understandably dubious. Is it possible that a man with questionable talents as an actor would succeed as a director? Well, with Gone Baby Gone, he certainly seems to have all the necessary pieces for a great movie. He has a script based off the book by the author of Mystic River about a little girl who is abducted and the detectives who try to find her. An all-star cast headed by Morgan Freeman and Ed Harris, and plenty of buzz. So it seems the only thing that could hold Gone Baby on back from greatness is incompetence on the part of the first-time director Affleck. As is becoming the norm, I unfortunately miss this one. So I have to ask you, Galen, based on his first effort, does Affleck have what it takes to be a great director? Surprisingly, I'm going to get say that it is a resounding yes. I loved this film. It's one of the best I've seen this year. I, I, I don't think there's anything I disliked about it, so I'll just start with what I loved the most. And that's the fantastic performances. You mentioned the all-star cast. Well, you have Morgan Freeman playing uh, Jack Doyle, this uh, a cop who heads a division that looks for missing children. And he's just fantastic in this role. He's lost a, He lost a child who was murdered in the past. And, you know, that's kind of what's driving him on. And it's just a really complex role, especially... And, and this time I am going to refrain from spoilers for your sake, if for nothing else, because yeah, it's when it sucks that I missed this because I, I have to admit Morgan Freeman's probably one of my favorite actors. Yeah, I did really want to see this. Yeah, and I don't see how you wouldn't have loved this movie. I mean, it's fantastic. But so Morgan Freeman's great. Uh, Michelle Monaghan is in it, and she's fantastic a- as well. Uh, we have Casey Affleck, who, you know, both of us weren't wild about in Ocean's 13, but, you know, with the assassination of Jesse James that we talked about last week and this, it's, I mean, he's really looking like a great young actor. I mean, this is truly one of those performances that is going to get some attention, I think. He he could conceivably get two... Uh, Best Actor nominations based on his two performances in the past couple weeks in these films. Uh, I mean, I doubt if he would, but he could. 
you know, and then we have uh, Ed Harris is in the film and he's terrific as usual. I mean, I think it might be one of Ed Harris's best performances in fact, which is saying a lot. So, it, you know, it, it's just the whole cast and even this, the smaller characters like Amy Ryan as the, the mother of the dot, the girl who's, who's been abducted is just fantastic in this role where, I mean, she's really a horrible person. She's a drug addict and she's negligent as a mother and uh, but yet she misses her daughter too i it, it's it's not a one-dimensional performance where she's just a worthless junkie i that's part of it but there's a lot of depth there so i love that as well uh you know and that kind of rounds out the performance issues but i think the look of the film is film is fantastic as well and this is more so where Affleck would have come in uh you know you just terrific use of cinematography you, we talk about Michael Mann being great at capturing the feeling of LA or Scorsese at capturing New York you know and in this film Ben Affleck really captures Boston by how he shoots the streets he has just amazing shots from the sky that give a really unique perspective on the city. It's, it's really was ingenious shot composition on his part or his probably, cinematographer either way. Probably makes the, the location almost like a character in the story. It does. And I very much like the movies of man or Scorsese where those cities become part of the part, a character in the film as well. You know, and also like the the mise en scène in general is just perfect, it, or at least very close to it. The interiors of the building of the homes just look because this is dealing with a very low income area, and it's just amazing how in a shot, just by looking at the what's lying around, the piles of clothes, the junk sitting over here, you get that feeling of just complete destitution that these these characters live in and it's done without ever coming out and talking about the fact that they live so far below the poverty line all they need to do is show you a shot and you got it and it, it's not up front or blatant it just blends into the background which is really how it should i mean that's i, I think anytime you can it's better to be subtle than obvious and the D scenes are probably not as good as Lucky Number Seven, right? Oh God! <laughs> With <laughs> oh, the oh. wallpaper and those houses. Yes, nothing could have better mise en scène than Lucky Number Seven. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, another thing I loved that was also subtle was the the musical score. Very subtle, but very powerful as well. It it. You know, it was understated throughout, but it really helped to convey the emotional weight of the story. And and speaking of the emotional weight, and why I think it's so important that this story be told in a subtle way, even more so than another film, is that it's such a morally complex story. I mean, you're left at the end, the choices that these characters make, you're left with questioning, you know, what 
choice would I make? Would I have chosen to do what he did, or would I have chosen otherwise? And you don't really know. I mean, because it's a really complex moral issue. And me personally, I enjoy those issues. It, it's too easy to write characters off as good or evil, or to make a film where the characters are just plain black or white. It's it's much more complicated to make a story where you're not really sure what the right decision would have been. And good characters are doing bad things for good reasons, and, you know, characters do bad things for... Uh, good things for bad reasons. You know, it's it's a really... It's a really fascinating movie and a really fascinating story all the way around. Sounds kind of like Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby. Yes. As far as your, your moral dilemmas. Yeah, I mean, I definitely I would put it up there. I, I think, actually, it's superior to Million Dollar Baby because it's a little more subtle. And I think, as I said before, I think it's important that you have that subtlety in a in a story that deals with questions of moral moral ambiguity, but that that's I I mean essentially all I've got to say. But you know I can't stop heaping praises on this film, so I highly recommend as soon as you're able to that you go see it because it's right. truly fantastic. Hopefully, we'll get that chance here soon enough. And I don't think there's any doubt that I'm giving this a 5 out of 5, because it's perfect. After disappearing from the face of the earth for a while, Kevin Costner makes his unrequested return to the cinema in Mr. Brooks. I kid, but in all seriousness, has Costner done anything worth notice since Field of Dreams over ten years ago? Well... He seems to think his career is needing of reju rejuvenation as well, since he appears to be changing his image, playing Mr. Brooks, a businessman and philanthropist who just happens to be addicted to killing. Other stars, such as Tom Cruise and Richard Gere, have played villainous roles after playing the handsome hero for years, with varying degrees of success. So, Doug, I'm going to ask you, has Costner successfully revived his career, or is it still on life support? I would say it might have might be better than it was. I wouldn't say he breathed new life into it. This movie was strange for me. I, I didn't really like it at first as I started watching it, but as it continued on, I, it grew on me, mm -hmm. and I had eventually got into it. Let me start off by saying that as a whole, it's it's thrilling. And once it got past kind of the first 20 minutes or so, I, I definitely wanted to watch until the end. There was a, a time I had to pee so bad, but I just didn't want to pause the movie. I wanted to keep watching until eventually nature won out. But So it has that going for it. It's very entertaining. And I like Kevin Costner. I thought his role here of Mr. Brooks was good. I wouldn't call it an award-winning performance by any means. I thought it was very well done, and so was William Hurt as his alter ego, Marshall. I liked that. Yeah, yeah, William Hurt was good. Certainly better than History of Violence. William Hurt was good in History of Violence, too. I, I'm kidding. He was good, and I just didn't. 
But anyway, because you're retarded. Like I said, it was the beginning and actually parts of the ending that kind of screwed it up for me. Some of the uh, plot devices, especially with Demi Moore's character, yeah, and they just didn't work for me. I thought the whole thing of the divorce that she was going through was played out way too much. I mean, yeah. I can see its purpose in there for you know an eventual kind of plot twist at the end, but they just kind of dwelled too much on it, and it, I think, was more so used to try and add depth to Demi Moore's character when there really wasn't anything there to begin with. Right. So I didn't care for that. Dane Cook's character was someone that, that kind of grew on me. I didn't like him at first. I didn't buy that he would go through all of this to try and set up Mr. Brooks. Sorry for that spoiler there, but... Yeah, well, I'm uh, yeah. I'm not going to hold back. But but I ended up liking him at the end. I, I kind of grew to like his character. So I guess you could say I'm kind of on the fence of him. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I... His character never worked for me. I mean, I didn't... What are the odds of the one person who happens to see him kill the, this couple is someone who wants to kill somebody, too? I mean, isn't yeah. that just an astronomical coincidence? Well, that see, I tried to take it so much as him not wanting to kill somebody. Well, I... I don't know. You're right. His character doesn't work that well. I can't. I thought I could try and explain it all, but I really can't. No, it's it's, it's just, flawed. Yeah, I, it's not. It, it's more of just a, a MacGuffin. It's something that gets it going. Yeah, because someone has to see it, and if if the person who sees it just turns them into the cops, that's pretty much the end of the movie. Right. So it and, is and just so they a MacGuffin. Ended up making but, him a, a full character, but he just has no depth. Yeah, and it, it's a contrived and unworkable MacGuffin to boot. I mean, you know, every movie t has a MacGuffin, but you can't you can't have one that's so preposterous you don't believe it would ever happen, or else then you find yourself just thinking about that instead of anything else. At least right. I did. Um, one thing I hated... I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, uh, <laughs> I was going to say... <laughs> While we're talking about things that are preposterous, you know, what the fuck are the odds that his daughter becomes a killer, too? I mean, that that's another yeah. thing that I didn't buy. And they never really explore that because, I mean, I'm, I'm going to float something by you. I mean, and this 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 review is full of spoilers, so... If you haven't stopped yet, I suggest you stop if you care about that sort of thing, but... Uh, whenever they find out, or whenever he finds out that she killed this guy, you know, he seems to assume that she has the same addiction to killing that he does, and that that's why she does it. But, like, I kind of thought that it might have been she killed the guy who got her pregnant, because it, it kind of sounded like she... It sounded more like a passion killing from what we heard about the crime. Yeah, because she didn't want the child anyways. Right, and it, you know, it just, it seems weird that she got pregnant at around the same time. And, and she says that the person was mur murdered about the same time that she found out she was pregnant. 
And it's like, yeah. that seems kind of coincidental. But they never explore that. They just let it die there. And I mean, I don't know. They they should have given you some input one way or the other, I felt. Well, and it seems, too, kind of silly that, oh, well, because, you know, I, I'm a, a serial killer in disguise, that must mean my daughter is, too. Yeah. You know, I don't think so. Yeah, and I mean, that could have been interesting, too, because it could have shown how, like, he, his own sense of the world is warped. So, I mean, that, that would have been good. But, and, and, and the, the, um, daughter being a serial killer, as well as the whole D- Dane Cook fiasco, are kind of another, and, and also you mentioned Demi's more, Demi Moore's divorce, is that, it brings up the question, what the fuck's the point of this movie? I, I mean, if you yeah. had to nail it down, what would you say this movie's about? It certainly changes from probably the first third to the second third to the ending. Yeah. And I mean, there there's so many subplots and storylines, and, and none of them really seem to share a thematic core. I mean, and none of them really get resolved either. No, no, not really. And and they're just it's a ridiculous amount of twists and turns and it's almost like a, a bizarre episode of Seinfeld where like you have all these running plot lines that don't seem to have anything in common and then like something happens at the end to bring them all together. And it's like in Seinfeld it works cuz it's comedy and you know that's part of what makes it funny is that all these preposterous plot lines manage to coalesce. In a movie like Mr. Brooks, that's not fun, at least not apparently funny, and that's another thing I want to talk about later, but it doesn't work. Because if, it's, if you're supposed to take the movie seriously, how can you do that whenever all these ridiculously disparate plot segments somehow forge together and become a single unit and everything all relates to one another in the end. Yeah, because especially another plot device that I didn't like were those thugs that got released from yeah! that down to me. And it even then culminates into a shootout at the end that was way out of place in this movie. I mean way out of place. Because oh, the, yeah. the music almost turns into this techno with strobe lights. It was like a senseless, mindless action type scene, and it, it just really came out of left field. It's I just kind of sat there wondering, where the hell did this come from, and what's it doing here? Yeah, I mean, what what the fuck movie is this? I, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And another thing I want to talk about too is is William Hurt as Marshall, it, Costner's alter ego. I'm. I like Hurt's performance. I mean, Hurt, to me, is far better in this film than Costner is. But at the same time, I don't think the whole alter ego thing really worked. It, I mean, I, I wasn't sure what they were doing with him. I mean, was, was Costner supposed to be like Earl's good side and Hurt his bad side? But it doesn't really seem to be that way because... Costner seems capable as Earl of making good and bad choices independent of Hurt, uh, of Hurt's Marshall. So, I mean, I'm not sure what exactly they were doing there. 
I guess you make a good point. I didn't have too much of a problem with William Hurt's Marshall. I, I thought I basically just took it as he was kind of the voice in Kevin Cost the back of Kevin Costner's head, kind of telling him, driving him almost, you know. It might be a little confusing more so because you do most of the time see William Hurt on screen. Right. And there will be times where he's speaking to William Hurt while other characters are in the scene. Right. And sometimes I was confused on whether or not those other characters actually heard his conversation, you know, as if he would be speaking to himself. Right. It was almost like a Stewie thing on Family Guy. Like, you're not sure if they can hear him or not. <laughs> right. And and I guess most of the time they couldn't. Cause no. You think realistically the characters would question, you know, did you say something or what did you say? But they never do. Right. I think it's all... All his dialogue with Marshall is internalized, I believe. But it took it took me a few scenes to figure that out. Right. And because I took that as internal, I guess I was willing to forgive the fact that, you know, Kevin Costner is able to make decisions on his own. Yeah. You know, with that. Because in a, a way, the kind of roles reverse halfway through the movie where... William Hurt keeps coercing him into the killing until you know, the whole screwed up plot yeah. twist with his daughter and stuff. And then he's like, no, you can't. And that well, didn't make sense to, to me him, either. So. I mean, I, I didn't understand why. I don't know. Like I said, I didn't get the whole motivation of Marshall and, and what exactly Marshall was supposed to represent. I, I mean, because... I thought at first, you know, he might be the evil side and Earl's the good side, but no, not really, because Earl makes active choices to do there's, bad things. And Right, there's a role reversal there. Yeah, and, and that the role reversal also damaged my second hypothesis, is that maybe Hurt as Marshall is the, um, like the addictive nature of Earl's character, the addiction to killing, but... The fact that he chooses, he doesn't want to kill, seems to preclude that. I mean, because if he just was the addictive force, he wouldn't be thinking logically about, no, we can't do that. The only support I can give to your second hypothesis is that toward the end, William Hurt doesn't want Kevin Costner to kill himself. Right. Only because then that would essentially end William Hurt, too. Right. Or Marshall. Right. It, I don't know. Like I said, it's I, not great support. I, I, I grant you, but you know, well, no, I think there is support. I just think that any support there is, is killed by the fact that he doesn't want to commit that one killing, you know, because if, if he's just the addictive force, then he would want to kill no matter what, just to get his fix. Right. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I just, like I said, I don't think Marshall works. I, I don't think they're even really sure what he was supposed to represent. They just thought it'd be a cool gimmick. So, I don't know. But the other issue I wanted to bring up was, it, the movie doesn't, to me, it seemed almost like at times the movie was going into black comedy territory. And... I thought to myself, you know, if they would have made this movie a straight black comedy, 
I think he could have been really good because then you hundred percent. Yeah, because then you wouldn't you wouldn't question things like the preposterousness of uh, Dane Cook's character just happening to see and just happening to want to kill somebody. And you right. wouldn't and question think, his daughter wanting to kill somebody either. It'd just be, since it was a comedy, you would accept those things. I think that's why the movie eventually started growing on. You know, at first, I, the preposterousness, as you so eloquently put, <laughs> was hurting me. I just wasn't into the film. But I, I did kind of gather that evidence of comedy almost. You know, things were kind of making me chuckle, and I, I was liking it. Yeah. And, then, you know, the ending comes where you have Demi Moore shooting out with these thugs and this horrifically graphic dream sequence with yeah. Kevin Costner's daughter. And it's just like, no, wait a minute. But it just sort of ruined the whole thing. I mean, well, I don't know. I, I think the dream sequence worked kind of as a black comic moment. Because whenever she puts the glasses on, that's fun. Well, yeah, the yeah. violent, but also whatever she puts his glasses on at the end, that's pretty funny. Yeah, that's I, true. I mean, and, but I don't know if they intended that, because there are so few moments like that, and the things like the shootout, and how, like, certainly, I I mean, like, Demi Moore doesn't know it's a comedy, I can tell you that. And, and, <laughs> and you know, I... I'm pretty sure Kevin Costner doesn't know. The only two who act like they might think it's a comedy are Dane Cook and uh, William Hurt. They kind of act as though they might think it's a dark comedy. But, you know, nothing to, nothing conclusive, though. It just really, to me, the movie doesn't work. Even though I will agree with you that it's entertaining in the sense that you can watch it and it's right. not like torturous and you're not going to want to you know pull the dvd out and throw it out your window i mean you'll be fine watching it from beginning to end but it's it's just not you'll good be nothing left with works a lot of questions yeah so i was there anything else you wanted to add no i mean that that was kind of it it was entertainment that's that's kind of the one word summary of the movie. It's entertaining, but not very good. I'm not going to be able to recommend it, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. I'm give it. Go ahead. Uh, I just asked what you were going to give it. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to make another point. No, um, I'm going to give it a two, two and a half stars. Uh, I'm going a little lower. I'm giving it a two. I, I, I don't even know if I'd quite call it entertainment. I, I mean. Just because the fact you can sit through it doesn't necessarily mean it's entertaining to me. Now, some people may be able to just see it as, you know, Mr. Brooks is this kind of screwed up character. Will he get caught by Demi Moore? And, oh, there's some violent scenes in it. Be happy. To those people, I give it a two, uh, two and a half. Yeah. To those people, I tell them to re-rent <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> well, that would be a better choice. This week's top five list is our top five films featuring the director's directorial debut. Galen, is there any uh, 
points you'd like to discuss, maybe uh, criterion, so to speak, that for these movies? Yeah, well, the only two things I want to mention is, first of all, it had to be their first feature-length film, so, you know... 40 they, minutes. <laughs> yeah, I believe the Isn't that what you said? 40 minutes. <laughs> I believe the cutoff for feature-length film is 40 minutes, but I'm not sure, but I don't think... I don't think any of ours were close enough to that to matter, but but yeah, so any short films they did before their first feature doesn't count. Any commercials or TV shows don't count. It's the first feature-length film that they directed. Um, and the other thing is, too, I'm, I'm, I don't know what you did, and we'll have to wait on your list for that, but I'm recusing Citizen Kane from my list. I'm kind of making it the Citizen Kane memorial list in a way. Because, I mean, obviously, that probably w should be number one on everyone's list. But Right, and I did the exact same thing. I did not put it on. Yeah, because it's too obvious. Yeah, so we're saying right now our number one, or, or above number one, is Citizen Kane. So don't write in and ask us why the hell didn't you put Citizen Kane on the list. All right. All right. Other yeah, than that, Citizen I've got... I've got nothing. Do you have any special criterion? No, mate, I have nothing. Other than, so other than Citizen Kane, this is our top five directorial debut list, and you can start us off with number five. Okay. My number five is the 1941 version of The Maltese Falcon, directed by John Huston. John Huston, of course, would go on to direct uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre among among several other terrific films. And The Maltese Falcon, starring Humphrey Bogart, is kind of one of the... Whenever you think film noir, you know, there are a few quintessential films that pop up. Uh, Double Indemnity, um, The Big Sleep, but The Maltese Falcon is always kind of the... one of the quintessential ones that you have to think of. It's really a great ride. It's has all of the trademarks of film noir, including a labyrinthian plot that's difficult to understand, and a MacGuffin that nobody get, really gives a shit about. But it's just a terrific exercise in mood and style. And Definitely one of the classics. Oh yeah, it's, it's one of my favorites. I think that's a good choice. My number five choice is Serenity. Directed by Joss Whedon. Of course, he's done a lot for TV, including the wildly popular Buffy the Vampire Slayer series. And he did the Firefly, Firefly series, which is what Serenity is based off of. Mm -hmm. But this was his first attempt at a feature-length film, and I think he did a wonderful job with it. Yeah, that's a good choice. It it barely missed my top five, but it's definitely my number six choice. Uh, Alright, so my number four then is a movie I actually just got around to seeing last night, being John Malkovich. It's uh, Have you seen this film, Doug? No, I've wanted to. It's come on the independent film channel so often that I never got the chance to, to sit down and watch it. <laughs> it I've, I've never known what to expect from it. It is hilarious. I mean, it is one of the funniest movies I've ever sat down and watched. And it's directed by Spike Jones. It's his first uh, feature-length direct uh, 
feature-length film that he directed. Uh, he, of course, is famous for his music video. But it's a fantastic movie. It's just bizarre, but it's hilarious. And how John Al Malkovich acts in this film is like a clinic. It's the funniest performance or one of them I've seen in a long time. So I highly recommend seeing that film if you haven't, and that's my number four. My number four is another fun one, and it's from a, almost the same year as Serenity. It's 2004's Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow yeah. by Karen Conran. And I, I love this movie for its you know throwback to like the, the 50s B-movie, almost like an Indiana Jones-style movie. Yeah. And it used... A lot of visual technology, though, to create the backgrounds and the the character the robots that are attacking. I guess I'd say. In fact, even the sets are pretty much all computer generated. But I think I know the movie gets criticized sometimes for its performances by Gwyneth Paltrow and Jude Law. But I think they did a good job. I think they they played off each other well. I think the the dialogue was charming and funny. I think everybody should give this movie a chance and go out and watch it. Yeah, I, I think that is a good movie. Um, it, it's one that certainly didn't get any respect, but I, I certainly think that it deserves it. My number three choice is Reservoir Dogs, directed by Quentin Tarantino, Doug's favorite director. And I, I think that um, in a lot of ways, Reservoir Dogs is... Other than Pulp Fiction, I think it's probably his best film. And it, it's just, you know, of course, notoriously, he directed it on an almost non-existent budget. Most of the film takes place in an old warehouse. I mean, but it's just a brilliant exercise in, in directing actors in, in the use of dialogue. And it's amazing how tense some of those scenes can get with very little actually happening. It's it's really Tarantino at the height of his form. Well, yeah, I think that's a good choice. I didn't mind Reservoir Dogs. I actually like that <laughs> you one. You didn't I mind like it. I like Pulp Fiction. They're probably my two favorites as well as Quentin Tarantino. I'm just not a fan. That's because you're a dick. I guess. Well, if you're going to get petty, I could also mention, as I look here on IMDb, that's not his first feature-length film. What if is? We use the, if we use the 40-minute. Well, I don't know if the 40-minute rule is official or not. Alright, all right, well then I won't pick. My number three choice is the movie Clerks, directed by Kevin Smith from 1994. Yeah. Which, of course, went on to make a sequel to Clerks 2, which I actually thought was funnier, but it was a little more Hollywood as well. The first one is a lot more Hollywood. Yes, yes. But the, the first one is just as funny. It, it's it's really good. Memorable characters, memorable scenes. Definitely rolling in the aisles, laugh out loud, funny. It's something I think most people miss and, and probably don't bring to mind when they think of Kevin Smith. But it's something everybody should see. Yeah, that's uh, that that's. Of course, it's. Oh, go ahead. Very crude humor. So if you're not into that, you may not 
find any enjoyment in this movie, but uh Yeah, but you're did. probably not listening to this podcast then either, so <laughs> But at any rate, yeah. Um and and by the way, the movie you were talking about by Tarantino, because I did some research just now as well, and it, it was essentially a home movie. So I I think that doesn't actually count. I know I did I did okay, but anyways, my number two choice is Twelve Angry Men, directed by Sidney Lumet. I I think that. This is another exercise in in pure dialogue and pure direction, really. I, what Sidney Lumet does with the camera throughout the course of this film, or rather what his, his cinematographer did with, with the camera, is just truly phenomenal how the room just keeps getting seeming to get smaller and tighter as the tensions continue to rise and you can almost feel the heat it's it's supposed to be the hottest day of the summer and these men as the title suggests they're not too happy going over this case that most of them believe is an open and shut case and there's one juror that believes the man might be innocent and you just feel the tension ramping up and it's one of my favorite movies really a fantastic film and a great directorial debut. Does sound like a good choice. My number two is Confessions of a Dangerous Mind directed by George Clooney. <laughs> I knew that would work its way onto your list. <laughs> well, you're certainly right, it did. <laughs> One thing I've always been waiting for is the release of The Gong Show to come out on DVD, and I guess for legal reasons it probably never will, is uh, Chuck Barris decide or battles legality issues with ABC, but this movie I thought was more or less a dark comedy. I liked it. I don't think any of it was true, true to Chuck Barris's no. life. I don't think anybody would ever believe it could be, but I think George Clooney does a wonderful job directing and actually starring in this movie. And, uh, even if you're not a fan of, of the Gong Show, I still think you can find enjoyment of it. I don't. I loved it. Yeah, it's it's a very good film. Didn't Drew make Barry my list. Does a but... fine job, but uh, Julia uh, Roberts Roberts is in it for yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I almost it... forgot her name there for a second. It's a good movie. All right, my number one choice. The Shawshank Redemption, directed by Frank Darabont. And it's also the only good movie that Frank Darabont's ever directed, so that's another uh, distinction for it as well. But Let me just go on record saying that's mine as well. Yeah, I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it, because, I mean, everyone's seen The Shawshank Redemption about 500 times at this point, which including myself, but it's really one of the great films. It's It's one of the films that you know, looking on the surface, it probably shouldn't be a great film. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's manipulative and hokey and and kind of cheesy. But for whatever reason, all of the pieces just fit together beautifully. And it's a fantastic movie that moves me every time I see it. I certainly agree. I think the performances in it are just stellar. I make no secret that Morgan Freeman's one of my favorite actors. Yeah. Yeah, truly a great movie. 
So those are our lists, and other than our number ones, there was no crossover either. So, I only want to, to mention here an uh, honorable mention that just missed my list. You had said Serenity was your number six. I do also have down here, I guess you could say this would be my number six, was Little Miss Sunshine, a very uh, recent film from 2006 by Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton. Yeah, that that's definitely a good choice as well. All right, we're almost done for the day, but we'll take a look at DVD and movie releases for the upcoming week. This Tuesday on DVD, we have uh, Captivity being released, which was uh, another crappy Lionsgate horror movie. <laughs> we have Daywatch. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but the Lionsgate has released some good stuff, too. I, I believe they uh, did The Constant Gardener, if I remember correctly. Or, or Lord of so. War. They might have done both of those. I can't remember. I think they did. Um, then we have Daywatch, which is the second in the Nightwatch trilogy. But I was not a huge fan of Nightwatch. I thought it was kind of stupid, but some people liked it. We have License to Wed, which looked god-fucking-awful. That was the film starring Robin Williams, I think you might recall, as a priest. Yeah, yeah I'm sure you try not to. Uh, then we have Spider-Man 3, which was pretty bad as well. And, uh, and then finally, the movie that we'll probably be reviewing next week, if all goes well, Talk to Me, starring Don Cheadle. And it, uh, where he plays a uh, Washington, D.C. disc jockey. So, and it looked promising. So, there's at least one thing that looks worthy of renting this week, if nothing else. But then, coming up this Friday in theaters, we actually do have something that looks amazing. American Gangster, starring Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe. And it's based on a true story of a uh, Harlem kingpin. And it looks truly phenomenal. I don't know how it can miss. So hopefully we're going to try to get a review of that to you next week as well. We also have B-Movie, the animated film uh, starring Jerry Seinfeld, which, you know, we'll have to hold out and see on that. Animated films have been kind of crappy lately. We have Martian Child uh, with John Cusack, which looks very bizarre, where... He's a science fiction writer, and he adopts a six-year-old son that believes he's an alien from Mars. Uh, now, whether he actually is an alien or not, I don't know. They might do a crappy thing like um, K-Pax or whatever the hell that oh, movie was. So, I hated that. Yeah, and this looks very similar to it. So Then we have The Kite Runner, which is the film adaptation of the, the best-selling novel that takes place in Afghanistan. Now, it's only opening in limited release this week, so not everyone will get it, but a few of you will. Okay, that's all for today's show. If you would like to review any of the ratings that we gave the movies that we covered today, please visit thosemovieguys.blogspot.com. There you can find more in-depth reviews, our star ratings, as well as links to items that we may have covered in the show. Plus, you can subscribe to our feed. 
Also, you can visit Google Groups at groups.google.com. When you're there, search for Those Movie Guys. You can post a message to our forums. And you can also email us at thosemovieguys at gmail.com. It's thosemovieguys at gmail.com. We look forward to any feedback that you can give us about why we're retarded. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.